we're going to just basically postpone that a month, and we're going to spend this month, this season leading up to Easter, to kind of reflect on this, this season that sometimes is called Lent. Now, Lent isn't something I grew up with. Maybe it's not something you grew up with, but it's a season where you kind of embrace Jesus in the wilderness and what the Lord was teaching him during that season. And so it's kind of leaning in to saying no to things in order to then celebrate the goodness of God at Easter. So what would it look like for a church to do that? We're experimenting the next couple of weeks with this series, If You Are. Um, so two years ago, two years ago this month, uh, my family took a trip to Colorado. We were going to go skiing, but mostly there was a conference out there. It was called Managing Leadership Anxiety. And at the time, I thought I knew what leadership anxiety was like. And boy, that, that conference and that time in the, in, the, in the history of the world, it just changed everything. Uh, we got there, and they started saying, have you all heard of this thing called COVID? Uh, COVID-19, coronavirus, you know, it's like, ah, who cares? Let's all, let's all circle up at tables and go to a conference anyway. Um, it was like, okay. But then that night, the night the conference ended, we were in Denver, Colorado, and I remember I was on Twitter, and there was this news out of a basketball game that they were there was a player who tested positive, and then they were going to postpone the game. And then the NBA announced that they were postponing their season. And it was like, oh, this is real. This isn't just political. This is costing them money. This must be real. And the next day, we were supposed to get on an airplane and fly back to Memphis. And the whole time, we were like, we should not be here. <laughs> you know, it was just, we were clearly packed in. You can see the wipes. Um, Kelsey would get hand sanitizer that we had filled up at the hotel we were staying at. We just filled up our little container. She would rub that on wipes and would just wipe down everything. We're like, we don't know what to do here, but we should not be in an airplane. And then the world kind of changed, didn't it? It, it kind of ushered us into such disruption. There's a season of uncertainty. Things were changing very quickly and dramatically. Um, and for a lot of us, it felt like a season, something like a wilderness, you know, where you're kind of aimless, where you're wandering, where you don't really know which way is north or south. You don't know which way to go. And you're just kind of there for a while. You ever have those seasons? I think for a lot of us, and culturally, that was happening. But even personally, Susan, I really appreciate how you shared that in the welcome this morning. You're kind of personal. And it wasn't COVID prompted. But it was, it was just, you go through a season where it feels like a wilderness. Can I just let you sit for about 10 seconds and just think through one of the most recent seasons that felt like that? You may be even in it right now. Just, just take 10 seconds and kind of think through that, what that felt like, when, when that was like. That was two years ago, but a year ago this month, I was kind of ushered into a very different kind of wilderness. Um, there was some things going on in my life, and I think it was probably the most significant depression that I've had in my adult life. It was about one year ago this month. Um, and we took a trip on spring break. We went camping, an extended trip, some time away. Maybe that'll do the trip, the trick. And it actually was this, this moment that was kind of like, we actually went to the wilderness. 
uh, we went to the desert of southern New Mexico and south Texas. And getting away to the wilderness was the thing that the Lord used to kind of spark this new burst for, for me. And probably for my wife, but it was, it was strange. The season of loneliness and depression and isolation and self-doubt. And then on the other side of it, it's this memory of joy. It's refining. We look back on that as a marker of the goodness of God. The wilderness is, it's weird like this. It's because the wilderness, it's a common theme in Scripture. You get Hagar, she's sent to the wilderness. Joseph, he's put in a pit in the wilderness. Moses, he goes out to the wilderness. Israel, they're sent to the wilderness. David, he's constantly running around in the wilderness. Elijah, John the Baptist. And yes, today we're going to look at the story of Jesus in the wilderness. But the wilderness isn't just a place in Scripture. It's a place of becoming. It's a season of forming. Something happens in the wilderness that, that it seems like it doesn't happen any other time or any other place. But remember, it's not just a place. It's that season of testing that's forming us and transforming us. Bring in those wildernesses. And you may be in one right now. But at least bring in some of those, those memories of wilderness and let's bring them to the scene that we find in Luke chapter 4. We're starting a new series called If You Are. I'll talk more about that in a few minutes. This is really part one, the wilderness the wilderness. Here's our text. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4 this month, and so we're going to go pretty slowly. I'm going to look at verses 1 and 2 today, and we'll kind of allude to some other passages. And then throughout the series, we'll kind of explore each of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. But today, we're just kind of setting the scene for what it's like to be in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4 begins like this. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. Into the wilderness. What's the wilderness? What is this place that he goes to? For him it's, it's geography, but it's important to know that in the Bible, the wilderness is not a retreat center, right? <laughs> like this is a dangerous place. The book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is going to be really important because Jesus quotes it several times in this Uh, section. Deuteronomy says this in chapter 8, verse 15. It says, the vast and dreadful desert, that thirsty and waterless land with its venomous snakes and scorpions. Like, again, this is not a retreat center, unless it's like run down, and it's the one you don't want to go to. It's like the the one without AC, the one without lights, but with the bed bugs, that's not the one you want to go to. Uh, One commentator, he says, the wilderness is uninhabited by humans in a haunt of evil, where demons and hairy satyrs and storm devils, howling dragons and monsters, the winged night monsters, and Azazel prowl. That's, that's the wilderness according to scripture. But it's this common place where people keep going there to find something. Very interesting. Very interesting. But why is he led by the Spirit into the wilderness? Isn't this a little odd? Now, if you're reading some of the other temptation narratives, think like the Gospel of Mark. Mark says that the Spirit cast Jesus out into the wilderness. It's the same word that he uses for when Jesus cast out a demon. 
the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. It's really odd. This is not just that he's led there. He's, this is not a, a scheme of Satan to get him there. This is a guidance of the Holy Spirit to get him there. Why? What's going on? Today we're really just going to ask kind of three questions about the scene of the wilderness. How was Jesus tested here? Um, how does the devil tempt him? And then three, how can we overcome? So let's let's just look through that. The first question there is how was Jesus tested here? And the, and the answer is somehow connected to that he's led here by the Spirit, that he's led here because of God's will. Um, Mark says he drove him out, he cast him out. Matthew, he says, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness in order to be tempted by the devil. He's here on purpose, and the purpose is testing. This kind of makes us ask, is God is God the one tempting Jesus? Right, this is a thought exercise that probably if you've been around church, you, you've at least spent a little time thinking about. But here it's just on the forefront. It's, it's acute. The Spirit led him here for the purpose of, it's, it says that he was, he was tempted there, he was tested there. The scriptures, they kind of give us two answers here. And it's like yes and no. Uh, in the book of James, you remember James is the brother of Jesus. James says, when someone's tempted, they should not say, I am being tempted by God. He says, God does not tempt anyone, and he is not tempted by anything. Don't say that. But in the same chapter, James says this. He says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you fall into various trials. It's the same word. Tests. Temptation. It's, it's, in, in Greek, it's, it's one word that has this range of meaning from testing to temptation. So who's the one doing it? Is it God? Well, yes, in, in some sense, but it seems that the intent underneath really matters. So testing and temptation in Greek are the same, the same word. So our, what's happening to Jesus here? Is he being tested or is he being tempted? It's like, yeah, it's the same thing. So here's, here's the double meaning. The word can mean temptation, which is meant to destroy you. And the word can also mean test, which is meant to reveal you. Here's, here's the lexicon, like the big Greek lexicon. This word means to endeavor to discover the nature or character of something. It's testing to, to try, to make trial out of it, to put it to the test. Let me, let me illustrate a few, a few ways. Um, have you ever gone rock climbing? Maybe you went over to high point climbing. I remember the first time I kind of strapped into their harness and you have this rope and you're like, oh, just fall backwards. I was like, well, before I do that, why don't I test this a little bit before I climb to the very top here, right? Have you ever been maybe at a lake and you see that there's a rope swing? You've never been there before. What do you do with the rope swing? You get, you get Austin Burgess and you're like, Austin, Will you go yank on that rope and test it? Because you don't want to do it. And you probably send somebody down and say, just can you go test how deep that is? Why? Because when you test it, then you know it's reliable. You can have your confidence in it. You can kind of put yourself out there knowing that it can hold you. That, that's testing. Testing can be a really good thing. Testing is where you see the truth about something, where it reveals its true nature and character. 
So the Spirit is leading Jesus into the wilderness. Why? Because the Spirit wants Jesus to be revealed in a special way. His true nature, the truth about him, is going to show up. It's, it's beautiful. Now, it doesn't always happen like this, this language of testing. You remember, Jesus is talking about uh, the soils. And he says there's some rocky ground. People are like rocky ground. He says they receive the word with joy immediately. But then he says in the time of testing, it says that it, it, they fall away. They ch it chokes it out. When the testing comes, Jesus says the testing reveals the true nature of someone. Sometimes Jesus is tested. You remember he was doing miracles. He was casting out demons. And people were confused. And they said, how is he doing this? Is he doing this by Beelzebub, the prince of demons? And it says they said this to test him. What are they trying to say? They're trying to get him to show them what's he's, who he really is, who he is on the inside. Where is your power coming from? Can you reveal it to us? Jesus, in the wilderness, the Spirit is trying to get him to show who he really is to us. He's tested here. This kind of reminds me of a, a season, actually in the last year, for, for me and my wife, Kelsey. We had been discerning this call towards church planting. And we were beginning our training, but they said, you cannot complete your training until you go through what they called an assessment. It's what scripture calls the test. So they sent us off to Washington, D.C. for several days, and they just put us through the ringer. At one point, we were making a Shark Tank pitch to this panel of people for a food truck that we had just invented like an hour before with people that we had just met two hours before. And then out, there's this panel of Shark Tank people who are kind of questioning us, and then there's 15 observers just watching everything we're doing. It's like we were being tested at every moment. They would put us in interviews. They would ask us questions about finances and our, our marriage. We took leadership tests and personality tests. And it felt like we, were, we weren't literally poked and prodded, but it felt like that. Because they were trying to assess us, to figure out if we were worth an investment for a church or for an agency or an organization. But it's, it's interesting. We were so exhausted at the end of that test. We went back to the hotel, and they gave us a gift card, and they said, just go enjoy a dinner. And we were like, we, we don't want to get out. <laughs> Let's just order in. And I remember that night, Kelsey cried and cried a lot. It was such a difficult test. But the next day, do you remember? It's, it's one of these amazing memories of my life where we felt more confirmation and had more affirmation spoken over us than we had ever experienced before. But in the test, though difficult it was, there was a refining, there was a revealing that had happened. And that, that was really significant for us. It was this moment of clarity. It was like, let's go. And we kind of, we went home and it was, it was a, a turning point for us. Something like that, but far greater, far, far greater, is happening in the story of Jesus in the wilderness. This story is not unimportant. It's at the beginning of Matthew. Before he does anything in ministry, he has to go through the test. It's at the beginning of Mark. Before he does anything in ministry, he has to go through the test. 
and it's here at the beginning of Luke, before he begins his ministry. This is a refining, clarifying moment of his calling where all of his questions about his own identity have to be answered, have to be revealed. Will he pass the test? And if he does, let's go. He, he's been discerning for 30 years in, in quietness. He's been a carpenter. He hasn't been in front of people. Who is this man? He needs to be revealed. The Spirit is leading him to test him. And though difficult it may be, he's going to come out the other side with clarity and with confidence. That's what the Spirit, I think, is intending in this test for Jesus. To reveal his true character. To discern his call before God. And he doesn't fly off to Virginia to do it. He goes to the biblical place of the wilderness to do it. And in the wilderness... The Spirit has something for him. The Spirit sent him here to reveal his true nature. This, I think, is all kind of part of this illusion that's happening to the book of Deuteronomy. Sometimes I use the language of hyperlinks. I borrowed that from a guy named Tim Mackey at the Bible Project. And he says a lot of times in Scripture you can see references that like, it's like where you click on them and it takes you to a different place. That's what we're going to do today. So, one of the hyperlinks in this story in Luke 4 is the story of Israel in the wilderness in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Look at this. Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. He says, I want you to remember. This is Moses speaking to Israel. Remember how the Lord your God led you. Look, God led you. We were just asking, why did the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness? Because that's exactly where God led Israel. Look, God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years. Why? Why? To humble and test you in order to see what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Do you recognize that at all? Jesus is about to quote that in our text. But keep going. It says, your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines. He teaches. He instructs you. This is cool. Jesus' test in the wilderness isn't the first time somebody's tested there. Jesus is not the first son to be tested in the wilderness. Israel. Israel is my firstborn son. That's, that's God in Exodus chapter 4, 22. So there's this there's hyperlink. There's this illusion to Israel in the wilderness. But look at some of these hyperlinks. Look, do you see the Jordan, the wilderness, 40 days? Have you ever heard a story of somebody in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they pass through the Jordan? Like all of these, uh, one commentator, he, he's just noticing all of these illusions. And he says, it's a virtual choir of voices telling the story and giving its significance. He says, you should be, it's screaming that Jesus is the new Israel. 40, 40 days equals 40 years. So you have the son of God, Israel. But they're tested. Israel. Israel has the special call. Their job is to go bless all the nations of the world. Their job is to be this holy people, a kingdom of priests. 
and they're led into the wilderness in order to be tested, in order to kind of receive the benefits from God. But when they go through the test, they grumble and they complain. They beg to go back to slavery. They bow down to false gods. And so this question that lingers in our mind in this text is what will he do? Will he pass the test or will he fail like Israel? Will he pass the test or will he fail? But look at this hyperlink where he was tempted by the devil. Now, a lot of us talk about the devil tempting us, right? We'll talk about the devil more in just a moment. But in scripture, this is only the second time anyone comes face to face with this figure. Any human comes face to face with this figure. You remember the first one? It's Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And this isn't the only hyperlink to that section. Take a look here. If, if you're in Luke 4 in your Bibles, look to the last verse of chapter 3. It's given this genealogy. Emily, I really wanted to give you a genealogy. Um, there are 75 son ofs. Son of, son of, son of, son of, son of, son of. Jesus is getting this genealogy about who he is. They, so it was thought he was the son of Joseph, son of, son of, son of, 75 times. I couldn't even fit it on a slide. But he is the son of Adam, the son of God. There's this hyperlink here to Adam in a couple of ways. To, to Adam, he's, he's not only the true son of Israel, he's the true son of Adam. His genealogy bears witness to it. So what is, it, what is his significance? Well, Adam also had this unique vocation and calling. Adam, Eve, you were kings and queens of creation. I give you rule and dominion. You, you have a responsibility to, to kind of cultivate God's presence in this place. But of course, Adam, he failed his test. Not in the wilderness, but in the garden. And so he was actually cast out into the wilderness. That's the word Mark used to describe what happens to Jesus, to be cast into the wilderness. And so Jesus is replaying the test of Israel. Is he going to pass? Is he going to fail? But Israel is supposed to represent all of humanity. And so Jesus is replaying the test of humanity for all of us. Not just Israel's Messiah, but he is for, the, for all of us, <laughs> for, for all of humanity. Take a look at this. There's another son of in context. All right, so right before the genealogy, this is the scene. The people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too in the Jordan by John. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. And the voice said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, this, this text is telling us, he is the son. He's, he's the king of Israel who's replaying humanity's test and he's replaying Israel's test so that he can save us all from this evil one who would destroy us in the test. It, everything kind of hinges on it. Will he pass? Will he fail? Of course, we, we know the story. But don't miss kind of all of this background because I think this background is what really informs how the devil tests him. So the Spirit leads him in order to reveal who he really is. And what it reveals is that he is the true son of Adam, that he is the true son of Israel, because he is the true son of God. 
All right, the second question we were asking is how did the devil tempt him? How did the devil tempt him? So he's led by the Spirit to be tested, which is to reveal the true nature of something. But there's another side of this word test, that when someone with impure motives has that kind of test, it's not meant to illuminate or reveal. It's meant to kill and to destroy. And here we're introduced to the devil. The devil. Uh, in, in Greek, it's diabolos. Do you hear the word diabolical? But in that word, you also hear that this isn't a name. This is a title. It, it means something like the slanderer. The one who lies. This is, I think, really important for us to kind of get our heads around. He finally steps out from behind the curtain, and we realize the one who is the source of this. He's not a physical being. It's not like he's a human walking around, or um, I heard Mackie call him a gargoyle. It's, he's not that. He's a spiritual being that is operating within the voice of, of Jesus' inner dialogue. So forget the medieval and forget the Renaissance artwork. This is not a winged creature. This is not a horned creature. This is a spiritual being having a slanderous attack in his thought world. And he is powerful. In the Gospels, he's called the Prince of Demons. John, three times, John 12, John 14, John 16. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's how Paul describes him. He is a liar. He is a killer. He wants to destroy you. Peter says that he walks around like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. Hebrews says that he is the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Jesus says in John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native tongue, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. He cannot tell the truth. He schemes. He deceives. Paul says he masquerades as an angel of light. We're asking, how does the devil tempt Jesus? And what we see is that the temptation of the devil is not random. First, we see that he tempts in this strategic way by preying on vulnerability. I think the temptations of Jesus are meant to teach us something about the nature of our temptations. These are recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke in order to help us in our test, in our wilderness. When he's hungry, then the enemy knows, now it's time to strike. And he attacks the vulnerability in a per personalized way. And he leverages vulnerability as an opportunity to steal, kill, and destroy. In our moments of weakness, and in our, our moments of wounding, he will strike with lies. Look at the temptations of Jesus. They almost all center on not only vulnerability, but identity. Take a look at this. We'll spend more time on these in the coming weeks. And so today I'm just kind of alluding to them, okay? He says, if you are the son of God, this is the test after all, right? You are my beloved son. 
Are you the son of Adam? Are you the son of Israel? Are you actually going to pass the test where everyone else failed? If you are the son of God. That's why this series is called If You Are. Because temptation, the wilderness moments, attack our identity. If you are. But look at this one. If you will. If you will. And then finally, it comes back, the third temptation in the Gospel of Luke. If you are the son of God. He's attacking his very identity and calling. The vocation that he received from God, that he's been discerning for 30 years, that he's now ready to go act on, is being attacked by someone who cannot tell the truth, by someone who is slandering his, his inner thought world with lies. He will challenge his identity. And the way that the evil one challenges the identity of Jesus is the thread line of his testing throughout the Gospels. Let me tell you what I mean. This is one of the most common ways that the identity of Jesus is tested by other people. In, in fact, in this very chapter, Luke chapter 4, he's going to go to his hometown. He's going to open the scroll and he says, I'm here. I'm the Messiah. I'm the anointed one. This is fulfilled in your hearing. And they say, isn't this Joseph's son? We know who your dad is. You're son of God? You're son of the carpenter. They say things like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Sometimes they get a little darker. They say, we weren't born in sexual immorality. We know who our father is. Remember, his mom and dad weren't married when he was conceived. He's, he's an illegitimate son of a carpenter in a backwards town. And over and over and over and over, people are questioning, who is your dad? All his life, there's rumors. Even in his ministry, they still know. In places where he didn't even grow up, word gets around that this guy doesn't even know who his real dad is. This guy is illegitimate. And for 30 years, he's had to live in this question. And now it's, it's coming to the front. And it's going to be everyone's question. And he is tested before it ever happens. Before it ever happens in, in the public ministry, he is tested in this private moment. The temptation isn't something bad to do. It's a test of who he is. It's an identity test, right? Bread is delicious, right? I love bread. Jesus, he instituted a meal based on bread, right? We eat bread every week to remember Jesus. Jesus went and he fed thousands of people bread. Jesus is a big fan of bread. I think Jesus, I praise him when I eat pizza. Bread with pizza sauce and cheese, it's delicious. Jesus wants you to enjoy bread. It's not about the bread. Now, you gluten-free people are like, yeah, it is. <laughs> I'm sorry, Scott, if you're listening. It's not to do something bad. No, I don't want you to bow down to Satan. Maybe that temptation is to do something about it. But what he's testing him is his identity. It's his vocation. It's his calling. This is how the evil one attacks. He attacks who we are. And sometimes he will use the things we've done as a weapon against who we are. God wants us to enjoy the things that the evil one is using to tempt him. And I think this is how really the arrows of the evil one work against us. Um, the, it's really the intersection of vulnerability and identity. 
Paul in Ephesians. He says, I want you to take up the armor of God so that you can withstand the schemes of the, the devil, the evil one. And one of those things, he says, I want you to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Picture like a Robin Hood scene where they're lighting arrows on fire and they're launching them. He says, you have a weapon against these things. But that's what the evil one does. He will, he will take a wound, a vulnerability, a weakness. and He will light it on fire and then he will launch it at you over and over and over again. And he will, in those weaknesses, in those wounds, he will get you to question your identity, who you really are. Are you really who God said you are? Or are you what this wound said you are? What this weakness said you are? In, in the wound, over and over, he will just shoot lies and slander. And he will shoot lies and slander with messages that question your identity. At that intersection of vulnerability and identity, that, and then it becomes the story that we tell ourselves. Of, of our story, we start being the propagators of the lies that we were given by the evil one. And he attacks insecurity. This is the last piece here. So, vulnerability and identity. When those intersect, it creates in us, I think, these... We, we're just not really sure who we are. It creates these insecurities. And insecurities, then, we, we come up with coping, way, coping mechanisms to kind of deal with this stuff. From the wounding, from the weakness, and from the attack, and the lie, from the messages that we start to believe about ourselves. I hope, I hope you're tracking with me. Because these insecurities, then, then we start living them out. We start living out our, our ways of coping. So what that means is that sometimes the best part of you also has a shadow. There's a, there's a gift and a shadow. Um, let me just share one of mine. Um, I, I tend to want to do the right thing, which makes me a pretty reliable person. I, I want to do things the right way. I want to do the right thing. I, I care about righteousness. Integrity is of a huge value to me. But that means that in my caring about my own right being and right doing, my self-righteousness, that shadow, it just comes alive. But um, I have a lot. I don't. Maybe in this series I'll, I'll start sharing more of my gifts and my shadows. But you see, it's my ways of coping with my own insecurities that make me into a self-righteous, obnoxious person, someone who's critical and judgmental. But in, in this story, there, there are three main insecurities that the evil one tries to highlight. The first one is appetite. The second one is ambition. And the third one is approval. These are our ways of dealing with our insecurities. So he says, you look hungry. And he says, what if you are what you desire, this bread. What if pleasure is really the thing that will satisfy your hunger? Pleasure. I am what I desire. I am what I have. That's one of our main ways of kind of coping. We accumulate stuff. Maybe it's sexual desire. Maybe it's food. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's drugs. There's some kind of fix that we want. It's 
I am what I have, my pleasure. But the second way we see in this story, and we'll see more so in this series, is this way of ambition. The temptation for Jesus is to go take control. You can have all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and their splendor. Is I am what I do. I am my performance. I am my power that I have. It's our ways of coping with our insecurities. The third one is approval. He takes him to the high point in the temple. He says, I want you to throw yourself down. Don't you know everybody's going to see it? And the angels will bear you up. And then they'll be cheering, go Jesus, look at that, that was awesome. I am what people think of me. I am my popularity. I am what my mom thinks. I am what my dad thinks. I am what my spouse thinks. I am what my child thinks. I am what my boss thinks. I am what my teacher thinks. There's so many ways this shows up as a way of kind of coping with the insecurity because we cannot hear the voice of God. We, we asked, what's going on with this temptation of Jesus? We asked, how is the evil one tempting him? And we see that the evil one would have Jesus question his own identity and lean into this, this lie, this slander about one of these areas of, of testing. But I think Jesus understands our weaknesses. But man, I have a lot more weaknesses than he does. There, there's a sense where I see all of these in my life. I was reading Henry now, and he's a, a Catholic priest who writes on spirituality a good bit. And he says, during our short lives, the question that guides much of our behavior is, who are we? Although we may seldom pose that question in a formal way, we live it very concretely in our day-to-day decisions. The three answers that we generally live, not necessarily give, but we live, are we are what we do, we are what others say about us, and we are what we have. In other words, we are our success, we are our popularity, we are our power. He says, in, in this scene, Jesus, he's confirmed, this is the moment of his life where you are my son, I love you, I'm well pleased in you. And then in that same moment, the spirit leads him into the wilderness to be tested. And the test is after this decisive moment, his true identity is declared. Now one goes on, he says, but the same spirit, the same spirit drove him into the desert to be tested by Satan. And Satan asked him to prove his belovedness by changing stones to bread, by throwing himself from the temple to be carried by angels, by accepting the kingdoms of the world. I love that phrase. He asked him to prove his belovedness. But Jesus didn't have to prove to the world that he was worthy of love. He was already the beloved. And this belovedness allowed him to live free from the manipulative games of the world. That's kind of the goal for this series. What would it look like for us to step into our true identities as children of God, as beloved? Because of what he's done, you are who God says you are. What would it look like for us to overcome? How do we overcome? That's what this series is all about. I'm glad you're here to start entering that. Today, I'm just going to give two answers one, one answer with two, two sides. The answer, um, I think, ties into uh, the practices and the person of Jesus. Here's our springboard for it. When the devil had finished all this testing and tempting, he left him until an opportune time. It's interesting that the devil left. That the moment of testing, the season of wilderness was over. 
he actually passed. He, he made it through. Something happened in the desert where he was revealed in a special way, and he was victorious. How? I want what that is for my moment of testing in the wilderness. How, how do I overcome and, and have him sent away? I think the answer is what Jesus does in the desert. I love this phrase. Spiritual disciplines are spiritual warfare. The practices of Jesus that we see in the wilderness prepare him for victory in temptation, in the wilderness. What are the practices? There's two that I want to invite you into this month. Solitude and fasting. Um, in your seat, or at least on your row, you'll see a couple of things. One is a bulletin with some cool things coming up. Some information about Oikos and on the back. You could, could have been taking notes if you weren't already. But here's the other one that I want to draw your attention to. At the top of the page it says, if you are part one wilderness, please take this home, put it in your Bible. This is your guide for the week. We'll, we'll put the digital version, um, make it accessible to the Oikos family as well. But this is kind of your guide to this, this week. I want, I want to invite you into two things. The first thing is solitude. What I mean is time alone in silence with screens off, with your phone off. And I mostly just want to kind of introduce you into this practice. Could you make one hour this week to practice solitude and silence? This is what I have in mind is like turn off just one episode of Netflix or one basketball game for one hour and devote it to being with the Lord and working through the graces in this way. That's doable. You can do this this week. Solitude. Why solitude? Dallas Willard, um, just kind of legendary professor, spiritual disciplines kind of guru. He says, of all the disciplines of, of kind of saying no to things, solitude is the most fundamental. Because the desert, the closet, is the primary place of strength for the beginner. He says, a lot of people are really confused about Jesus because it looks like he goes into the desert so that he can be extra weak. <laughs> and he says, that's not why Jesus goes into the desert. Jesus goes into the desert for the strength of solitude. He says, it's totally opposite of how most Americans think about this. It's not weakness. It's not suffering. It's not flight. It's not failure. It's joy. It's strength. It's effectiveness. Actually, this holds up if you just look at the wilderness in Scripture. Hagar is sent into the wilderness. She's abandoned with her child to die in the wilderness. But do you know who she finds there? She finds the God who sees her. God is showing up in the wilderness. Joseph, he's in a pit, and they bury him in the wilderness. You know what God is doing there? He rescues him from the pit. Moses goes off into the wilderness, and God works in his life. Israel finds this oasis in the wilderness. Ruth, David, I, I was reading in, in the mornings I, I go through the Psalms. I was just so struck by Psalm 55. It's a Psalm of David. He says, I wish I had wings like a dove because he's being chased everywhere. He's just being hounded by his enemies. I had wings like a dove and then if I, if I could, I would fly to my place of rest. I would fly to the wilderness so that I could find your refuge. He's craving the solitude of the wilderness so that he could be alone with God. 
I wish I had wings so I could fly to my place of rest in the wilderness to find your refuge. This is Elijah. Elijah, he comes down, he goes into the wilderness, and in the wilderness is where he discovers the still, small voice of God. And this is where Jesus finds the strength at the height of his power to begin his ministry. Solitude is the practice of wilderness without kind of the weight of testing and temptation. It's, it's the practice, you know what I mean? It's, it's where you're, you're exercising the strength, muscles, to, to build you up and make you stronger for when the testing does arrive. It's how we prepare. So throughout his life, Jesus sought out solitude and silence. He would get away by himself to a, a desolate place. That word desolate place is the word wilderness. He kept finding time to be alone. Can you start with one hour this week? I think you can. I'm inviting you to do one hour and to use that hour to walk through this. But I'm also inviting you into another practice called fasting. Fasting. Jesus, it says that he didn't eat for 40 days. This is precisely what Elijah did. This is precisely what Moses did. And these moments of testing, they abstain from food in order to depend on God who gives them life. Rather than on bread, which gives, he says, man doesn't live by bread alone. Man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In fasting, we come to rely. I'm not asking you to fast from Twitter or Facebook uh, or Netflix or caffeine. I'm asking you to fast from food one day this week. Can you do that? Um, you can say no to me. You just don't say it audibly. That would be discouraging to everybody else. Just one day. Um, if you want, you can do it the same day that I am. I would, I would love to have some, just to know that there's some other people fasting from food today. I'm going to do Thursday night to Friday night. But here's a little fasting hack. You can eat before and you can eat after, right? So like 7 p.m. Thursday night to 7 p.m. Friday means you have a late dinner Friday and you have an early dinner Thursday. But this is a good introduction into just 24 hours. And we're actually going to do this, I'm going to ask you to do this the next three weeks. Just one day this week, one day next week, one day the week after that, and then the week of Easter, we feast, okay? So this is a step into solitude and fasting, these disciplines of Jesus. I'm not, we're not doing the full 40 days just yet. I don't, I'm not ready for that. Maybe you are. Um, I think there are some people who are ready for that and have done that uh, in the Oikos family. Uh, I won't name them because one of the things about fasting is that Jesus reminds us when we fast, don't appear distressed. Don't draw attention to the fact that you're hungry that day or you're going without so that others are like, wow, look at how spiritual you are. Um, that in itself will be part of the test. So don't do it to be noticed or to be talked about. Do it to be with the Lord, um, to grow your dependence on him, to exercise that muscle maybe for the first time. The practices of Jesus are how he overcomes. But the last part, really, for how we overcome is the person of Jesus. The devil left him until a more opportune time. But he came back. John tells us that the devil kind of came into Judas. Jesus is having dinner. He's not fasting He's having dinner with his disciples. And his friend Judas leaves. And then he goes off 
into the garden. Remember the first test in the garden? Now it's come full circle. He's not hungry, he's just eaten. He's not thirsty, he's just drank the cup. But he still says, Lord, if it's possible, would you have this cup pass from me? There's, there's this theme of appetite. But there's also this, this theme of ambition. Judas shows up, betrays him, he kisses him, he identifies him, and this horde of people, they come to arrest Jesus. Remember what Peter does. One of the guys has a sword, so Peter takes the sword, and he strikes the ear of a man named Malchus, a servant of the high priest. He is ready to fight. Take the kingdom. It's also this test of approval. He goes, he's put through a mock trial overnight. And the next day, the gospel writers, they tell us that he is just ridiculed and scorned. People are chanting to murder him. They're spitting on him. They're cursing him. And as he hangs on the cross, they say he could have called a legion of angels. That would have done it. What he did in the wilderness to pass victoriously over the evil one, he finished at the cross to destroy the evil one. And the reason that you and I have hope to overcome the power of evil that is at work within us, the reason you and I have an identity that is secure enough despite our own sinfulness, is because of what he did at the cross and how God confirmed it at the resurrection. That, that one, that man, it says, is our high priest. He is God and he is human. He understands every weakness that we have. He can sympathize. He knows. And he won. He destroyed, he destroyed the devil and the power of death. It has no hold on him. He destroyed the accuser. So even when he speaks truth against our identities, he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He takes away the sting. Where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The person of Jesus is the hope for overcoming the power of the evil one. It says... Because he is our high priest, he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Would you stand? I want to bless you. Send you out. O Lord Christ, our high priest, we profess that you are the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have you who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. 
Lord Christ, now we approach your throne, your throne of grace, in the confidence so that we can receive your mercy and find grace to help us in this time of need. We praise your name and thank you for the victory. Amen.